Good morning. I will uh, open us in prayer, and then we'll uh, get into the teaching. Glad you uh, all are with us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be able to gather in your name, uh, to be able to dive into your written word, and um, this morning to see what you are like, um, to get just a brief little glimmer of uh, just your uh, immense, never-ending goodness and your nature, um, and we pray that uh, you would stir in our hearts just the, uh, the praise and the affection that is due to you. We love you. Amen. If you don't mind turning with me to John chapter 11, we will be in verses 1 through 37 this morning. Uh, the story is uh, Jesus and Lazarus and his family. Uh, we will talking, be talking about the first part of that story. Uh, next week, we will uh, get into Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Spoiler alert. I know, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, picking up in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, this Mary, if you remember, whose brother, Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps... He will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. <laughs> 
When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? How you see is what you see. If we think back to our conversation last week, we were left with two points for consideration. One, you are not as rational and logical as you think you are. And two, you do not belong to yourself. And that's a good thing. I want to bring back into focus the first point of consideration. You are not as rational and logical as you think you are. With this in our crosshairs, it is important to consider our humanness, namely that which involves the lenses that we perceive the world around us. Not only the world around us, but more specifically, how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see God. These things are shaped by our biases, our previous life experiences and relationships, our habits, and what Tim Keller would call our background beliefs. We bring these influences back into focus because it is important to realize that there is God as revealed in the scriptures, and then there are these influences trying to frame how we see him. How you see is what you see. We need to consciously and explicitly come back to who he is as laid out by the scriptures, because if we don't, then someone or something will give us a definition. Matt Karsh last week keyed in on the word attention, and that is exactly what we are talking about here today. So, in considering who he is, let's give attention and look more closely at who he shows himself to be in this passage with Lazarus and his family and his disciples. Picking up in 11 verses 1 and 2, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The writer John gives us some background information to add context to the story. First, he gives us a location. Bethany is a village less than two miles away from Jerusalem, just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus was currently north in Bethania, which is a little more than 90 miles north of Jerusalem. It is here that Jesus retreated and escaped to after we read of attempts to stone him and arrest him, just in chapter 10. Then the author gives us this little note about Lazarus being the brother of Mary, who famously wet Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears. Now, what story is John talking about here? In John 12, Matthew 26, 
and Mark 14, the gospel authors record a story in the house of Simon the leper, where Mary approaches Jesus, she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume, and she anoints Jesus, wiping his hair, wiping, not wiping his hair, wiping his feet with her hair. It is a little unusual for John to be making this comment because in his account, chapter 12 has not yet happened. So he's, he's mentioning this story that he'll relay in chapter 12, but he makes the note here. Either the chronology of the recorded stories is not the point of emphasis, or the writer assumes that his readers have either read or are aware of this previous account. For John's gospel account was the, was the last one to be written. But to the reader, this comment should have stirred up memories of another account of a woman with an alabaster jar in the home of a man named Simon who anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This account is in the Gospel of Luke. It could be reasoned that even when Matthew, Mark, and John recorded the story of Mary, they are assuming the reader is very aware of this other account, as well as which may have been known um, in, in and amongst the area, being that it was a very oral culture. I believe this footnote by John is relevant to the present story of Lazarus, so let's take the time and read the story. Please turn with me to Luke 7, 36 through 50. In Luke 7, we read, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have, something to, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman, but speaking to Simon said, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, although many have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guest, you can hear them gasping, began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus then said to the woman again, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In this story, Jesus's reputation had preceded him. For the woman, Jesus's love for the sinner had shaken her world, and the tangible yet radical forgiveness had, 
had stirred in her a response of appreciation and gratitude. One that she no doubt showed up to demonstrate at her own risk, mind you. But this reputation of unorthodox love for the sinner also brought forth a response from Simon. His response was to invite Jesus, the itinerant rabbi, to his house so that he and his peers could cross-examine him, attempt to humiliate him by not offering him the common courtesies of hospitality. Not only were these common to any guest in a traditional Middle Eastern household, but especially so to a guest teacher. The woman who is present on the scene responds with a costly demonstration of love. Jesus responds by acknowledging her courageous act in front of the entire audience that is on hand and then proceeds to, as uh, Kenneth Bailey notes, speak words of hard steel to Simon. First, he highlights his lack of customary hospitality. Then the climax, he turns and he speaks directly to the woman. This being completely countercultural for a rabbi does not speak to any woman, even his wife, in public places. Then he audaciously states, as if he has not done enough audacious things to this point, your sins have been forgiven. Bailey again notes, Jesus attacks Simon in public in his own home. He is not a fool. Jesus responds to the woman who acted in costly love with a costly demonstration of love on his part. Simon and his friends are deeply offended and will return with a bigger stick, end quote. In the story recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, Mary is in the house of Simon the leper, and she also demonstrates costly love, in this case, financially costly love, which springs forth out of the same appreciation for the radical love of Jesus that this woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee had. Instead of the Pharisees, however, in the story of Mary in John 12, it's Jesus' disciples who are indignant at the generous act. But now coming back to our current story in John chapter 11, we pick back up in verse 4. When he, Jesus, heard this, that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. This conversation gives us some insight into Jesus's timing, his knowledge of the will of the Father, and Jesus's foreknowledge of the situation with Lazarus. However, what I want to highlight here is Jesus's motivations that he discloses. The author tells us of the great love he has for Lazarus and his family, but then proceeds, but then proceeds to note that Jesus stays put. He stays there for two days after the messenger has come to him with the report of Lazarus. What possibly could his motivations be? Jesus states them, quote, This will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified. D.A. Carson gives us some clarity on what Jesus is talking about here. Quote, The death of Lazarus will prove to be for God's glory, not in order that God may be glorified, meaning praised, but in order that God's glory may be revealed. 
since in the Gospel of John, glory is more commonly not the praise that God is due, but it's his revelation. It's his self-disclosure. God's self-disclosure takes place preeminently in his son. Lazarus's sickness and how Jesus will address the situation is, as Jesus stated, primed for God to reveal himself. It's primed for an act of self-disclosure. What is God like? Who is he? Keep reading. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus turned and said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, they will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. Martha's response is directly in line with contemporary Jewish thought regarding the Messiah. We don't have to look past the disciples to understand that commonly it was understood that the Messiah would be a savior, a king-like figure, and that he would provide a rescue. A rescue from what and by what means is another thing entirely, but let's simply right now focus on the concept of the resurrection. The Jewish people were unique in this manner, but the concept was in line with what Martha states here. Quote, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This was culturally understood as the day of the Lord. What Jesus brings into view is that the resurrection is not a distant event to happen in the future, or it's not only a distant event to happen in the future. He is it. He is the power of life, and he is about to show it. Verse 32, when Martha reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. When Mary, excuse me, she fell at his feet. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The scene continues to build. Jesus interacts with the messenger, then his students, then Martha, who first on the scene was probably the eldest, then Mary, and then the others present. This all grew to be so much, we read, that Jesus wept. Dane Ortland states, quote, twice in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. In neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem in Luke 19, and in the other, his deceased friend Lazarus here in John 11. But what was his deepest anguish? It was the anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? The tears of others. How you see is what you see. And the controlling question for us today is, who is he? 
A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy comments, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. C.S. Lewis states it a little bit more specifically when he says, quote, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it relates to how he thinks of us. So, who is he? More specifically, who is he in relation to us? Considering the passage here in John 11, what is his self-disclosure? What does he reveal about his nature, his heart? There's a lot to unpack here, but I want to highlight three facets of his nature that I believe he reveals here in John 11, in the first part of John 11. First, he loves. In John 11, anytime it is said of him by another in the story that he loves, the Greek word is phileo, or brotherly love or affection. But anytime John, the author, describes Jesus's love for another, in the Greek, it's agape. When Jesus, back in chapter 3, describes his and the Father's love for the world, John 3, 16, his chosen word is agape, costly, self-sacrificial love defined by Jesus as giving one's life for another. This is what we see in this passage and are reminded of in the story of Mary and the perfume, as well as the woman and the perfume. He moves towards us in love to the cost of himself. His love of the woman in Simon's house was costly. Here now, his love for Lazarus and his family is costly. How? It moves him back into the perimeter of Jerusalem. Remember, he was near Jerusalem and then retreated about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, because of his love for Lazarus and his family, he comes back in. He comes back into the crosshairs, so to speak. He will remain here within the perimeter of Jerusalem until his crucifixion. And I believe that Jesus knows it. Namely, that his journey to Lazarus was also his journey towards the cross. Tim Keller states, quote, Jesus knew that in bringing Lazarus out of the grave, he was putting himself in. And we read immediately after the raising of Lazarus, which we'll unpack next week, it says, quote, so from that day on, after they witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to take his life. The second aspect of his nature that I believe he reveals in this passage is that he gives life. Much of the scene is a great big prelude 
to one of Jesus's last big climactic signs. We've been talking in the Gospel of John, the signs of who he is. Uh, Jesus explicitly states to Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. He sets the stage to demonstrate his self-sufficient power over death with the raising of Lazarus. This will further act as a prelude to his own resurrection from the dead and furthermore prelude his promises to his followers, including us 2,000 years later, which we read back in chapter 10 that they will, quote, never taste death. Lastly, he cares. We can hear the critique of others. Lord, if you had only been here. Lord, if you had only been here. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? We hear our own cynicism as it starts to emerge. Why did he allow Lazarus to die in the first place? Couldn't this whole thing have been avoided? Then we hear the cry of those who endure pain and suffering. Lord, don't you care? Not too dissimilar from the disciples in the boat. Teacher, as the storm is raging, teacher, don't you care? But that is exactly what we see in this story. Even before the resurrection of Lazarus, he cares. In verse 33, it records that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. In the Greek, it means that he was groaning, springing up out of a displeasure and an anger. If shalom is the God intended as it should be-ness, here he is a God that gets involved in our sufferings and is angry and displeased that the world is not as it should be. Additionally, we read that he weeps. He is not stoic. He, move, he is moved with grief and compassion. This is an unparalleled response to suffering by any other worldview, world religion, or deity. Again, Keller rightly concludes, quote, why does a good and powerful God allow evil and suffering? Why doesn't he end it? We don't know what the reason is that God allows suffering, but we do know what it isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love us or because he doesn't care. He got involved in our suffering. So, going back and considering the initial thing we opened with on the conversation last week, all the influences that try to frame how we see God and his nature, we sit here amidst cultural influences, background beliefs, habits, biases, our families of origin, our smartphones, political parties, and the enemy of our souls, amongst many other things. And we pause to lay eyes on our loving, caring, and life-giving Lord. We take the time here today to behold just a small fragment of the beauty of the God of the Scriptures. We believe that our walk and our trust in Him begins and ends with His remarkable nature, specifically manifested in His relation to us. And we ask, in the words of Paul, that the eyes of our hearts would be filled with light, that we may behold Him more clearly. Again, Tozer comments, quote, 
we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Paul says it this way in a letter to the church in Corinth. And we all, with unveiled face, continually seeing as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, um, we are in awe of you and who you are. Uh, you are a beautiful Lord. You are loving, and we can't even, uh, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, like just like the depth and the breadth and the height. It's like it's beyond, it feels beyond understanding how much you love us, and you are not this this deity or this being that is stoic, that is cold, you care. Even before you act, there is no response of like, oh, just like, stop your crying, watch what I'm about to do. You step alongside of us. You're in anguish when we're in anguish. You weep when we weep. You care, Lord. This is how beautiful you are. And it doesn't stop there. It's not just a matter of you being full of love and you caring for us, you possess the power in yourself to bring life, to bring life out of nothing. I'm, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans that you call things that are not as if they were because life is in you. You are the life and you are the resurrection. And so we praise you, we behold you, as it says here in Corinthians, we look at you as conjuring up that language of Moses looking at you as a friend does face to face and Moses' face shining with your glory. So we step aside and we push off the influences and the things that try to tell us, no, this is what God is like. And we lay eyes on you, the God of the scriptures, and we with unveiled faces behold you. We are thankful that your spirit is with us, that you are with us, and that you do not leave us. You are near to us, and that you transform us. We love you, Jesus.